Lust on fire is what we are talking about today. What is the granddaddy of all Washington political scandals? What is the granddaddy of all Washington political scandals? You have heard of Bridgegate. Everybody know what Bridgegate is. You've heard of Irangate. You've heard of Monica Gate, Travelgate, Bounty Gate, Troopergate. You've heard of all the gates. Where did all the gates begin? All the gates began where? Right there. What is that? Watergate. All the gates began right there at Watergate a number of years back right here in our own hometown. This scandal led to the first and only resignation of a United States president. This scandal, the first and only, led to the resignation of President Nixon. Now, let's have some uh, involvement here. How many burglars broke into the DNC that night? Anybody know how many? Shout it out. Three. Five, five, you're right. Whoever said that over there, you get something. What was the date? Anybody know the date of the break-in? Date of the break-in, date of the break-in. Come on, you're all Washingtonians, please. This is your own home. Yeah. June 17th, 1972 is when it took place. The, Wash- the White House referred to it as a third-rate burglary. That's how they referred to it initially. But this burglary involved the CIA, the FBI, and the IRS. That's who it involved. So... So much for a third-rate burglary. How many people went to prison? How many people went to prison? Many of them top officials in the Nixon administration. How many numbers? 43. 43 people. The committee to reelect the president, the committee to reelect the president was behind the entire scandal. So I will refer to it as everybody refers to it as the CRP. That's the name of Add one vowel. That's exactly how they felt after this was over. The CRP. That's how... Okay, and what they what they call what everybody called this what they did was dirty tricks. And so what I need you to lock in this morning, very important. This wasn't their first dirty trick. Actually, this wasn't the first time they tried to break into the DNC headquarters down at Watergate. They had already wiretapped their phones. What you need to lock in is this. This was just this was the culmination. This was the harvest time of many dirty tricks that they had been performing. On June 17, 1972, Watergate security guard, just a general water guard, uh, security guard there at Watergate, his name was Frank Wills. He was doing his rounds, and he noticed some tape that had taped open the lock on a door. And so he thought it was suspicious, so he called the police, and the rest is history. These guys showed up. Who showed up? Who are those guys? Say it like you mean it. Woodward, Carl, uh, Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein showed up, Washington Post reporters, and they were like a dog on a bone for the next two years after this. They uh, wrote a book, All the President's Men, and a very good book, and it also turned into a movie, which Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, it's a, actually a pretty good movie, you should watch it or read the book, it was about. Woodward had a source. He had an inside source, didn't he? Who was that source? What was his name? Deep Throat, but what was Deep Throat's name? Mark Felt, Mark Felt, show us. There he is, Mark Felt. Now listen, do you know where they met? You know where Woodward and Mark Felt met? They met right down the street in Roslyn in the middle of the night, like at 2 o'clock in the morning. They would meet in an underground parking garage in Roslyn, Virginia, less than a mile from here. And that's where they did all of their meetings with Woodward and Felt. Right? And they talked about the scandal. How did the scandal unravel? How did it unravel? What was the words? What were three words that Felt said to Woodward? What did he say to him? This is crucial. How it unravel. What did he say? Three words. Follow the money. Did anybody notice the money coming inside today? Okay, there. that's why we have. So if you're wondering, what's up with the money? Okay, that's up with the money. Follow the money. It was a money trail that brought President Nixon down. 
All right. Um, the first dirty trick, which I said, wasn't this one, you know, the, uh, the June 17th break-in wasn't the first dirty trick that they had performed. There was many things. Now, former U.S. Attorney General and now campaign director for the CRP was this guy, John Mitchell. He was, John Mitchell, former U.S. Attorney General, was in charge of a slush fund of money, and they used that slush fund of money to destroy their opponents. And they did many, many things over and over and over again. Now, I promised on the weekend broadcast that just came out, if you don't get the weekend broadcast, you can sign up for that right on your Connect card, but I promised on the broadcast that you would receive exclusive information. I'm going to be good to my promise this morning. Woodward and Bernstein did not turn this up for you. I guarantee you will not hear this at any other location. This is, this is exclusive to you, all right? So uh, the people here at Grace Community Church are so committed to you and to the truth that we want to unturn every single stone. And so we're going to tell you all kinds of exclusive information this morning. All right, the CRP headquarters was at 1701 Pennsylvania Avenue. So what's a block away from 1701 Pennsylvania Avenue? It is the White House, exactly. So uh, their next-door neighbor, the CRP's next-door neighbor, was a company by the name of Total Building Services. And Total Building Services did a couple of different things. They did building maintenance. They did manned security guards. They supplied security guards. And they also offered a chauffeur service. My parents owned Total Building Services. And they were next-door neighbors to the CRP. The CRP's head of security, right, his name was James McCord. Let's see the picture, this guy. That's James McCord. All right, he was one of the five guys who broke into the DNC on June 17th. He was in my dad's office the day before all of this happened. And my dad looked at him and said, Jim, you look awful tired. And he said, I've had a lot of late nights recently. <laughs> now, what, what we know is, is this wasn't the first time that they had tried to break into the DNC. This wasn't the first. They had tried before. This is just the time that they actually got in there and they got caught. As I said, they had already wiretapped the DNC's phone lines. So James McCord is in there the day before. My Uncle Jimmy, who worked for my parents as a chauffeur, chauffeured around this guy, Maurice Stans, or some people call him Maurice Stans, this guy right here, former Secretary of Commerce and Finance Chair for the CRP. Now, remember, this is all about money. This whole thing is about money. Maurice Stans, my Uncle Jimmy is his chauffeur. Maurice Stans gives my uncle, uh, it was not so nice as this. It was more like a brown paper bag stacked with cash and says, could you drive this out to Dulles Airport and put it on a plane? Now, listen, if you think there's some kind of, uh, you know, total building service had nothing to do, all we're doing is supplying, okay? So just in case you think there's some kind of involvement, there isn't, uh, the, all right? But asked him to drive out to Dulles Airport, we drops it off. And remember, this whole thing is about money. The whole thing falls down around money. They were swimming in cash, the CRP was absolutely swimming in cash. So at their office at 1701, they had what was called a money room. And in the money room, they had so much cash, they couldn't keep track of it. It's all over the place. So a person who ran security for my parents' company, this guy's name was Bob Houston, former uh, bodyguard for Sammy Davis Jr., of all things. And Sammy Davis Jr. actually visited the CRP. He'd been at 1701 before. He did some work for the CRP as well. And he had told my dad... He said, they have a money room that has so much cash in it, they have $100 bills that are just lining the floor. They're just walking on the money. It's like carpet. Now I come to my last point. So when, when the whole thing came down, the break-in the break happened and the word came out, so what the Watergate office people did, the people that own the Watergate, they said, you know, we want to get everything out 
of that room. So they ripped out everything and just redid the whole place and part of ripping out the carpet. So they asked Total Building Services to rip all of that all that carpet out. And so as just a little kid right here on South Taylor Street, we had all of the carpet from the Watergate office buildings on our back porch. (laughs) And my parents had this idea. We're going to show you the picture. But this carpet here is from June 17, 1972, (laughs) with a little bug on it that I used to play on as a little kid. And all those little carpet tacks they put in carpet, I had so many cuts, well, I'll never forget it because I had these cuts all over the place. But this is a plaque, and you can see what it says up there. It's a piece of history. This is actual carpet from the Watergate offices of the DNC, Washington, D.C., at the time of the historic break-in, 2.30 a.m., Saturday, June 17, 1972. This, uh, not this actual plaque, but one like it, they had many made like this, and it's notarized on the back and everything, has been on the Today Show. Of course, that was many years ago, but uh, has been on the Today Show. There's your exclusive information about, <laughs> about the most famous scandal in all of Washington, D.C. All right, so what is all of that? have to do with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 13, which is where we are in this whole scandal series. What is that? It has everything, absolutely everything. I'm not going to read to you 2 Samuel 13 this morning. I'm not going to do I'm just going to briefly tell you the story. Here's the thing. Um, 2 Samuel 13, I think, is one of the saddest chapters in the entire Bible. It's just extremely, extremely sad. So let me tell you how the story, what it goes. So you know David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11, and then the confrontation in chapter 12. And now, now we move on to what happens in chapter 13. So David's oldest son was Amnon. His oldest son was Amnon. And Amnon, it says, that as you begin the chapter... Uh, was in love with his half-sister, and her name was Tamar. And I wasn't in love with her. He was in lust with her. That's really clear as you read the story. He was burning with lust. He was, his lust was on fire for her. And he was so upset about it. And he had, he had a friend. The guy's name was Jonadab. And Jonadab said, hey, look, do this. And so what he tells him to do is fake sickness. So he fakes sickness. His dad comes to visit him. So look, look, Amnon, who is he? He's a firstborn son. So what does that mean, everybody? He's in line to the throne. He gets everything that his dad has. He gets all the riches. And he's not living bad as it is right now. Trust me, okay? But he gets all the riches. He gets the whole kingdom. He gets the throne. That's what's in line for him. So he's got everything the world can offer, you know. And so his dad stops. He comes to visit him. And man, he says, hey, you know, how you doing? He says, oh, look, I'm really, really sick. Could you... Could you send Tamar? Could you send her here? And could you have her make some special? I want to see her come and actually make the cake in front of me and then feed me. And dad says, okay. Now, here's one of the saddest things about the chapter. So then we're told this. So King David, and if you remember, if you were here a few weeks ago and we talked about all the sending that goes on in chapter 11, all the sending, we're told this. David, right? We think about how he sends for Bathsheba so he can have an affair with her, which some people consider a rape. So he sends his daughter, Tamar, to Amnon. And what happens? So she gets there. He sends everybody out of the house. She pleads with him. She pleads, please don't do this thing. You're going to disgrace me, and you're going to look like a fool. Don't, don't do it. She begs, begs, begs. But he forces her, and he rapes her. And then after he rapes her, it says that his hatred, his intense hatred for her was far more than his intense lust for her. And he throws her, he actually has his servant come and throw, think about this scene, everybody, and throws her out of the house. Now, she had a special robe that she wore. All of King David's daughters, 
all the virgin daughters he had made a special ornamented robe for. So people knew they saw them in that robe, these girls that weren't married, and, and they were virgin daughters. They had these special robes. She goes out of the house. She's totally disgraced. She's humiliated by what's happened to her. And she rips these royal robes, and she begins to throw dust, and she's there in shame. And her, her brother Absalom comes and gets her, and he says, you know, was Amnon with you? And she says, yes. And he says this. It might seem like he's being nice and brotherly. He's not. Okay? He says, come to my house and don't say a word about it. And just exactly what you need to do if you've just been raped, right? So don't, don't say a word about it. And so just stay quiet in my house. And there she's like lives in seclusion with heartache and pain. And King David hears about it, and it says he's furious. But that's all it says, right? He does nothing. Just absolutely nothing. It's horrendous. It's a very terrible chapter. But the problems of 2 Samuel 13, everybody, did not begin in 2 Samuel 13. See, Amnon, the oldest son, what did he see in his father? He saw whatever his father saw, his father took. Right? Isn't this the natural progression? Whatever his father David saw, he took. He saw Bathsheba, boom, I'll take her, get her, bring her. Right? But the problem of 2 Samuel 13 actually didn't begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11 either with the rape of Bathsheba. It didn't begin there either. You have to back up farther. You've got to go to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Let's, let's just look at that. I put it down for you. It's on the screen behind me. It's also on your, uh, on your bulletin. Look at this. 2 Samuel chapter 3. Sons were born to David at Hebron. So these are the sons that were born to David in the city of Hebron. All right? The first was Amnon, whose mother was Ahinoam from Jezreel. The second son was Kiliab, whose mother was Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Karma. I'm not going to keep reading. What you see there is you have six names of six women who are six wives that David married. It's six wives. Those aren't all the wives, everybody. Scripture's clear. He had many more. Like, he's got a new wife for every day of the month. It's like Baskin Robbins. He's got the whole thing is completely covered every day of the month. Right. But the problems, the problems actually didn't begin in second Samuel chapter three either. They didn't begin in 13. They didn't begin in 11. They didn't begin in chapter three. They began all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy where God says, do not accumulate too much money, power or wives. Don't accumulate too much because it's always going to lead to something really bad. Do not do that. And David said to himself, what does God know what he's talking about with this? And he chose to do something. This is very strategic. He chose to ignore what God had to say about this. He said, no, there could be nothing wrong with it. What could be wrong? Every other king in my position has many, many wives. Everybody else is doing it. What could possibly be wrong? Look, here's a woman. She wants to be married with me. She wants to go to bed with me. I want to go to bed. We're both consenting adults. How could anything be wrong? And God says, this is bad. Don't do it. Trust me. And David says, I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to ignore you. There's no way that possible because we just love each other. There's no way possible that this could end bad. And God says, this is going to end really bad. I need you to write this down. This is super, super important. God says it. Current scientific data backs it up. Lust is never satisfied. Never forget that. Lust is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. Everybody, think, think. Nixon was going to win that election. And he wasn't going to win it by a small margin. President Nixon was going to be reelected by a huge margin. A huge margin. 
Matter of fact, he was reelected five months after the break-in. Even the cloud of the break-in that was over top of him could not slow his campaign down. He received 18 million more popular votes than Senator McGovern. It was a landslide. It is the largest margin of any U.S. president ever. He won in a landslide. Why did he have to bug? Why did he have to do dirty tricks? Because lust is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. It wasn't enough for Nixon to win. He had to destroy his opponents. Had to destroy them. So what does that have to do with King David? The story that Nathan comes in and tells David when he confronts him, he says, look, there's this guy. He's got one little lamb, and he loves this one lamb, and he pets, and he caresses, and he's happy, and he's totally content. And there's this other guy. He's like this big, huge rancher, and he has stables filled of lambs. And what is he talking about? He's talking about King David and how he has 30, 40, 50, 60 wives. He has wives all over the place. And yet, even though he has a different wife for every single night, he's miserable. He's so discontent, and it plays out in David's life. And what does he do? He murders one of his best friends, Uriah, one of his most trusted friends. That's how deeply in misery he is. It makes sense to our minds to say that more is better. And God says it's not. It says that Uriah over here, who's not ignoring God, not ignoring what God says, that God actually knows what he's talking about, is so far more content than David over here who is absolutely miserable. He can't sleep. Now he's murdering all this. He's having tremendous discontent. Lust is never satisfied. And we should never ignore what God says about that. Look how the Bible puts this. If you're dealing with lust, it says it is so, it's so dangerous like, we should take a knife. This is how graphically it protects. You should put a knife to your throat to get yourself to stop it because it's going to destroy you. Jesus, in talking about lust in Matthew chapter 5, says this. If your right eye causes you to stumble, man, gouge it out. This is how dangerous lust is. Jesus is talking all about lust. This dangerous is this, man. You should start gouging things out if it's causing you because it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy you. Gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, man, cut it off. This is graphic. Oh, my gosh. Man, if we all took this literally, we'd be blind and wouldn't have any hands, feet, whatever, okay? <laughs> if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better than to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Hell, what is hell? What is hell? What are we talking about here? We're just talking about just... Hell, like at the end of my life when I go to hell. We're not talking that narrow here. There's a valley outside of Jerusalem called Gehenna. It's where they burned all their trash. It's where they destroyed things. And what this is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that lust will destroy us. It'll destroy us because it's never satisfied. It brought down President Nixon. It caused tremendous humiliation and pain for David and all of his family because lust is never satisfied. Satisfied. You know, we began this series, Derek did, talking about that uh, TED talk that they did on the great porn experiment. This isn't a Bible. This is, the TED talk's not about the Bible. It's not about church. It's not about Christianity. It was a scientific look at what is porn doing to men around the world, specifically to men. And you know what it's doing? Basically, if you watch that, it's a 15-minute talk. It's making men miserable. That doesn't make sense. Most guys would look at that and say, I want to be David. Not any husbands in this room, but most guys, I want to be David. 
Other guys outside of this room want to be David. That's right. That's got to work. That's got to be great. And God says, no, it doesn't. It leads to dissatisfaction. And then the scientific data comes in and says, yes, you're exactly right. It's making people miserable. God actually knows what he's talking about. Because lust is never satisfied. It always leads to misery. Now, listen, it's really easy to pick on things like immorality, sexual immorality. Y'all stop being sexually immoral. But everybody, the Bible doesn't start and stop with sexual immorality. That's just an easy thing for us to pick on. And we like to do it in church all the time. All you immoral people, stop your sexual sinning. Okay, look, Jesus is really clear. It doesn't start and stop with that. I mean, you can lust too much for money. You can lust too much for power. But how about this one? How about this one? How about worry? Are you obsessed with worry? Same deal. Eat you up, destroy you. If you're lusting over worry, same deal. If you're greedy, if you're selfish, if you're stingy, how about judgmental? Anybody ever met somebody who was like totally in love with being judgmental? Anybody ever met somebody like that? Not enough of you have. I will introduce you to some people if you'll see me after church. (laughs) Right? stingy, greedy, gossip. Look, look, I know we love to tee off on this sexual thing all the time, and I think, it's, I, I think it's ridiculous. There are so many other areas in our life that Jesus Christ talks about that will completely destroy us if we let them go haywire. And the point is this, is that lust is never satisfied. And this is backed up by data in and outside of the Bible. In and outside of the Bible. All right. Second thing I want you to know this, please write this one down. I want you to really think about this this morning, everybody, because we all got stuff going on in our lives. Consider the consequences, please. Please consider the consequences. David is humiliated. He is disgraced. And it didn't start in 2 Samuel 13. It didn't start in chapter 11. It didn't start in chapter 3. It began when he ignored God way back. This only plays out what he did started 20 years before everybody. He decided, I'm going to ignore God. And it played out and he was humiliated by it. Let's, 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 Let's see this video clip now. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad, to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issue of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. You know that was a humiliating moment for him. And we're all not going to be president of the United States or King David, right? So we don't have such a big stage to be humiliated on. But the point is, is that if we ignore what God has to say and we allow our lust for whatever the issue might be, we think that somehow it can be satisfied if I just do more and we realize it's destroying us, there will be consequences to follow. That the Bible is clear on. Galatians chapter 6 
What we sow, we will reap. God says, I will not be mocked with that. What we sow, we will reap. We need to consider the consequences and the possible humiliation that will follow. The book of Proverbs says that ignoring God leads to poverty and shame. You don't want any part of that. You don't want any part of poverty and shame. The book of Proverbs says that ignoring God, pride comes disgrace. That we can be disgraced. God does not want us to experience that. God wants us to avoid poverty and shame and disgrace. Now listen. Some of us in this room, you're like me. Most are like me. And people who can be self-righteous at times and really like to call out sin, it can tick you off so badly. It can tick you off so badly. You're like, you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to do my own thing just to spite you. You're like, you tick me off so much. You think you've seen sin? You've never seen sin. I'm going to send up a big one. Right? Okay? Because we're ticked off. What I want to ask you is do this. Look. Just because you think I'm judgmental at some things I say or I'm arrogant or somebody else is judgmental or arrogant, don't let that lead to your disgrace. These truths are true. This comes to pass. We see it all over the place in the Bible and we see it in our world around us. There is a harvest time for things that we do. Don't allow somebody's attitudes or actions to lead you to something that's going to bring disgrace. Consequences will follow. Don't allow that. Listen, God wants nothing but the best for you, as any good parent would. Wants nothing but the best for you. Doesn't want you to be led into disgrace. We began this year, everybody. We did this series. It's complicated. Some of you remember that from the fall. Some of you thought I went completely insane. I understand that. I understand that. We talked about it's all about Jesus. It's about his, it's about his grace. It's not about our actions. It's about his actions. It's not about our obedience. It's about his obedience. I know some of you thought, yeah, but John, what about sin? And we pushed that so hard. Come in full cycle to this, everybody. Full circle. There are consequences to our actions. When Nathan speaks to David, he says to David, after his sin with Bathsheba, he says, David, I want you to know this. God has forgiven you. And then he says this, but there's severe consequences to be paid for your actions. Just because God forgives us and it's about his behavior, not our behavior, doesn't mean that horrific consequences, shame and disgrace can be played out on our parts. What I'm asking you to consider in, in this conclusion here is consequences that come. This morning we're going to have communion. Those, if you're on communion, don't move yet. Don't move yet. We'll move in just a second. We're going to have communion. Here's what I want you to think about this morning when we take communion. I want you to think about, God, is there a better way for me? Is there some path that you're on that you need to get off of? And I want to tell you one last story, and it's going to seem, I don't mean it to sound manipulative, but there is a truth that I have seen played out in people's lives with my own eyes. I've seen it played out in the scriptures, and here's the truth. Galatians chapter 6 says, when you sow something, like you ignore God and you do your own, oh God, you don't know what you're talking about, do do my own thing. I'll just push into whatever it is I'm pushing into. 
Maybe it's that thing that you keep thinking about this morning. You can't really hear what I'm saying because you're just obsessed thinking about this thing. Whatever, what, right? I'm just going to push into it. I'm going to keep sowing those seeds. What the Bible says is there's a harvest that is coming. There's a harvest. Galatians chapter 6, there's harvest time. When they broke in on June 17th, this is why I'm just pushing this upon you. It wasn't the first dirty trick. It was in a long line. June 17th was harvest time. David didn't just screw up in 2 Samuel chapter 11 with Bathsheba. That was harvest time. You follow me? Sometimes in my own life, I do stuff. and I'm like, well, it looks like I got away with it. It looks like God says I shouldn't do it, but I did it. And look, no lightning bolts. I'm okay. Everything must be all right. I'll just keep doing it. Once the harvest starts, you can't stop it. Once June 17th took place, Nixon could not stop it. Once 2 Samuel chapter 11 took place with Bathsheba, he could not stop it. It was coming. Once the harvest starts, it starts and it's over. Here's what I'm trying to impress upon you. There are things in our lives right now, you have an opportunity right now to stop it. To stop it. Before the harvest happens. Because once harvest time hits, once the clock goes in motion, it's coming. And that's where the disgrace and the pain and the hurt. And I'm just asking you to consider this. Out of all the, you know, it, all that's in my heart, I won't speak again for three, you want to hear me for three months. I'm asking you to consider this. Please. God wants nothing but the best for you. I want nothing but the best for you. Stop the cycle before the harvest hits you. Seriously consider this morning during communion. Say, you know what? I'm on the wrong path. I'm going to repent of that this morning. I'm going to ask God to help me get on a better path. We'll take communion. Communion is open to everybody. Our prayer team, as always, that are on the wall, if you want somebody to pray with you, is a really important time. So I'm going to ask those that help us communion to please come. And I'm going to explain to everybody, if you're new, I'm going to explain real quick how we do communion, how logistically it works, okay? So you see all these people moving around right now. What they're doing is they're, they're getting the communion elements, and they're going to go to five different locations throughout this room. So there's one here, and there'll be one back there, and one over here, and up front here and here. And what you'll do is you'll see that they'll be holding a plate that has like a little wafer on it. And then the second person will be holding a cup that has the juice in it. And you'll just take the wafer and you'll just simply dip it into the cup. Take it back to your seat or you can consume it right there. What is communion all about? The Bible says life is in the blood. What does that mean? It means that God loves you so much, he would give his life for you. This is what it means, everybody. The cross that Jesus hung on was the greatest shame that anybody could ever experience in Jesus' day. The whole idea was to shame somebody. And what Jesus is saying is, let me take your shame. Let me take your shame. There's communion. Let me take your shame. This morning, I'm asking you to consider, as you take communion... God, with your help, I am determining to get off the path that I'm on. Please take my shame away. Please help me onto that better path that you want me to be upon. Communion here is open to absolutely everybody. This is between you and God.
between you and God. And it's God's gracious offer of love to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, your loving kindness to us. Lord, I want to ask for those here in this room right now. God, you're, you're just dealing so strongly with some of us in this room. There's a path that we're on. We haven't reaped the harvest of this path. Maybe we've reaped other harvests along our life. And some of us are worried that there's a harvest that's going to be reaped. And others are like, oh, I'll never reap that harvest. But God, you're dealing with those of us in this room that if we'll just stop it now, that maybe we can avoid the severe consequences that are ahead. God, give us strength. Give us determination to put an end to it now before that nasty harvest comes. God, we thank you for your love. It's so incredible what you've done for us, Jesus. Thank you for your offer of forgiveness. Bless the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.